Please turn with me in your Bible to the last chapter of the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 28. For those who have been with us over the last year and a half, we have worked our way uh, really verse by verse through the book of Acts, and we have now gotten to the very last sermon in that series. Every once in a while, I just think it's, it's sometimes useful to just say a word about why do we go through books of the Bible verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter to the very end of the book. And uh, there, are, there are a number of reasons for that, but one of the big reasons is this. The alternative is this. I just sort of pick what I want to talk about each week. Let's think about who controls the pulpit at that point, right? So if, if I just sort of pick whatever I want to talk about each week, I could get on hobby horses. There are all kinds of dangers. I will avoid subjects that I don't really want to talk about. I might overemphasize subjects that I really love, that I enjoy talking about. But if we pick a book of the Bible, there's nowhere to hide for me. Whatever it says, I am bound to say, and again, as I love to say, I'm trapped because you've got your Bible in front of you just like I've got my Bible in front of me, and if what I say is clearly contradicting what the Bible says, you'll, you can tell. And so there's an accountability built into uh, what we call systematic expositional preaching, and um, I say all this, and then I'll tell you, I'm going to do a little topical preaching in the next few weeks. <laughs> So at the end of a long sermon series, we also sometimes like to have a little break where we do a few things, cover a few loose ends that, have, that don't often get emphasized. So I do actually want to talk for a couple of Sundays about some things regarding uh, church in general. They'll still be exegetical sermons. They'll be out of a text of Scripture, but it'll be a little more topical in nature for a few weeks. And then uh, leading up to Easter and, and certainly on Easter Sunday, we'll be talking about the resurrection from 1 Corinthians 15 for a few weeks there. And so I look forward to that. And uh, the next big book that is coming down the way, I know some of you may be curious, is going to be the Gospel of Matthew. We've already covered the first two chapters over Christmas break. I did very little of that covering since I was out of commission for that time, but Scott, Jerry, and Greg did most of that for me, thankfully. But uh, Matthew 1 and 2 we covered for the Christmas story, and then we'll pick up with John the Baptist in Matthew 3, Lord willing, a few months from, from now. So let me read today's passage, Acts chapter 28. I'm going to start in verse uh, 11 to get, catch us back up with last Sunday all the way through the end of the chapter. And this is God's Word. Acts 28 verse 11. After three months we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up, and on the second day we came to Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself and with the soldier who guarded him. After three days, he called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said to them, "'Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans.' When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are, for with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. 
When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to, our fa- to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive, for this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them." Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Let's pick back up where we left off on last Sunday. I have I sort of loosely have four points today. I'm going to wander around a little bit as I go through these points, so not everything's going to be precisely on point, but I've got four basic points to hold together the the message. Number one is Paul's life, uh, which is verses 16 to uh, to, to, to 21, and then I've got Paul's teaching, verses 22 and 23, the Jewish response, which is verses 24 to 27, and then to be continued, verses 28 to 31. So let me start with our first section here, Paul's life. And I just want to repeat something that I ended on last week, but I want to pick it up and say a few extra things. Look with me at the the very last verse of last week's text. This is verse 16. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. Now, I got to give credit to where credit is due. Alistair Begg had a sermon on this passage that really got me thinking about this verse that I don't think I would have ever even thought much about otherwise. But Alistair Begg spent quite a while in his sermon discussing the soldier next to Paul. And I know I mentioned this last week, but let me add something that Alistair Begg brought to my attention. The, the, the soldiers that would be chained one at a time to Paul's arm, very likely, or something along those lines, physically he was connected a chain to them, and they would take shifts throughout the, the, the day and the week as they went. And he, he says he got to know apparently a lot of the guards. The whole praetorian found out that he, his imprisonment was for Christ, he says in Philippians 1. But Alistair Begg says, think about this. These non-Christian soldiers, these you know, just Roman pagan soldiers, they're chained to Paul. Every time Paul has to do anything, they are watching. They're right there. Which means they get an up-close and personal first-row, you know, look at Paul's life, and they will know as Paul does all his preaching, you know, people would come to his dwelling that he was paying for, and people would come to his little apartment, and they would come to see him, and he would preach to them. And the soldier would hear every word of the sermon. And after the sermon was over, he would know whether or not Paul actually lived what he preached. He would know if Paul was actually a complainer when nobody else was around but the soldier, He would know if Paul was not content. He would have been, think about it, a soldier would have been chained to Paul when Paul, over these next two years, dictated the letter of the Philippians. Very likely it was dictated and someone would write down. Very often Paul used a scribe who would write down his words and he would often, you know, sign it at the end. I, Paul, write these large letters with my own hand. This is an authentic bearing in all my letters, those kinds of things. And so for most of the letters, someone else was writing as Paul dictated. And imagine the Roman soldier chained to Paul as Paul talks about the Roman soldiers in Philippians 1. 
And then imagine as he expresses, I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Whether I'm lifted high or brought low, I have learned the secret of being content in all circumstances. Yes, through Christ I can do all things, through him who strengthens me. The soldier would know when that letter was sent off whether Paul was a fraud or whether he was telling the truth about what he had learned. And, and there's so much we can learn and glean from that in our own lives. If a non-Christian were following you around this past week, and the non-Christian was literally like that soldier, just there for everything you did for the last seven days, would they see evidence of a real walk with Jesus that goes beyond church on Sunday when, you know, you got to look like everything's going, you know, Christian loving Jesus, you know, we're here in public, we got to act like we got our stuff together is the way it feels. Then you go home. If a non-Christian followed you around and saw your home life, how you talk to your roommates or your kids or your husband or wife, if they saw how you spend your time in the evenings, if they saw what you do in the mornings, if they saw your rituals and routines, they would know whether you're a coffee drinker or not. They would know what time you go to bed. They would know when you get up, how much sleep you're getting. They would know everything about you. If someone had followed you around these past seven days, would they have no doubt about your love for Jesus? I mean, seriously. If someone had followed you around, like that soldier, for seven days, would they even be aware outside of the public part of your faith? Would they see, wow, this person's really passionate about Netflix. They can't stop. Man, this person loves March Madness or whatever it is. And I'm not saying those are bad things. But would the person say at the end of the day, you know, the person's not claiming to be perfect. Yes, they lost their temper a little bit with one of their kids at one point. I feel like I'm telling my story. <laughs> but, but for all their flaws, I really do think this person genuinely loves this, this king they call Jesus. And they really are uh, in love with that triune God. And they really believe this book. They are not claiming to be perfect. They are not perfect. But when they mess up, they confess it and they come clean. They don't lie and cover up. That They really have a consistency to their faith. And could we say that ourselves for those around us? Let's look at verse 17. What else the soldiers may have seen? Verse 17, after... How many days? Let me try that again. After how many? Three days. Uh, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews, and when they had gathered, he said, we'll stop here. I don't know about you, but procrastination is a word that haunts my existence sometimes. Is there not a temptation? I mean, maybe this is not you, but there is a, I have to fight that every week of my life. The, the, the temptation, I got papers to grade, Okay, I probably have much less papers to grade than most of you who teach, because I teach part-time. But I've still got papers to grade. I'm sitting there going, I don't want to do that right now. And there, there's a part of me every week that I'm battling with procrastination. Paul is not a procrastinator. I mean, think about this guy just survived two weeks on sea, a shipwreck, a couple of months on the island of Malta. He gets finally to Rome. He's just arrived, traveling hundreds and hundreds of miles. He arrives in Rome. I'm like, let's, let's call a break here. Let's just have a couple weeks off. We're going to relax. I'm going to stretch. We could be here for a while. There's no reason to rush. Paul takes three days. Three days. It's not a long time after all that travel and all the physical things that Paul had gone through. And Paul says, okay, three days, it is time to get busy. I know that uh, Christianity could be undermined by my bad reputation here in Rome amongst the Jews, so I better get ahead of that. I better call the Jewish leaders together as soon as possible, send messengers, get them to my apartment, and I want to tell them why I am in chains to clear my bad reputation with some, and I want to preach the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the fulfillment of Israel's scriptures. Let me read you, I mean, this I, I, someone else pointed this quote out to me once uh, years ago. I, I think I read this somewhere, heard it somewhere. 
This is a tremendous quote about procrastination. You look excited. Are you ready? This is a great quote. This is from a guy, a Scottish preacher from the 19th century named Alexander McLaren. Listen to th- this is just phenomenal stuff on the joys of not procrastinating. No unwelcome task, no unwelcome tasks become any the less unwelcome by putting them off till tomorrow. It is only when they are behind us and done that we begin to find that there is a sweetness to be tasted afterwards. And the remembrance of unwelcome duties, unhesitatingly done, is welcome and pleasant. Accomplished, they are full of blessing, and there is a smile on their faces as they leave us. That is true, I think. Undone, they stand threatening and disturbing our tranquility and hindering our communion with God. If there be lying before you any bit of work from which you shrink, go straight up to it and do it at once. The only way to get rid of it is to do it. See, that's not mainly a guilt encouragement. That's mainly a think about how much better it is when we just take the responsibility, move forward, do what God has called us to do. As Elizabeth Elliot famously said, do the next right thing. Do the next right thing. There is a place to relax. There is a place after an exhausting week or weekend to take a break. There is a place to, to sit back and watch the game or to watch whatever it may be. There's a place for that. But, but let us not get so caught up in our entertainment or in whatever it may be that we fail to do what God is calling us to do day in and day out. Let's look at uh, verse 17 again. After three days, Paul called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, he said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But be, excuse me, because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge uh, uh, to bring against my nation. Let's point out the end of 19. Paul says something. This has not been said so far in Acts, to my knowledge. This is the first time this has come up. Paul says, though I had no charge to bring against my nation. Now, what's going on here? Paul's Paul's saying, I think, my accusations, the, the ones I've gotten from the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, are so groundless and so slanderous that I could actually make a counter charge against them and get them in trouble for lying about me. Do you see that? So Paul says, listen, I had the, my, the case against me is so bad that I actually could have brought a lawsuit against those who were accusing me. I could have brought charges against them and probably won. But Paul says, I'm not going to do that. I'm not here to try to win that game. I'm not going to draw any kind of a charge against my nation. Verse 20, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, we have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken any evil about you. Now, it it may be a little bit surprising to you that nobody, I mean, you remember the last two years, Paul has been in Caesarea near Jerusalem, remember, locked up under the governors, Felix and Festus. Do you know, you remember how much the Jewish leadership despised Paul and was trying to get him in big trouble, right? It's surprising that none of the Jewish leadership has sent any messenger to Rome ahead of Paul to warn the Jews in Rome about Paul, if they hate him so much. And there's probably two reasons for that. One reason could just be 
It's hard to travel quickly during the winter. Paul was the last person out during the time when you could still sail, and he was really, they went out too late, and so maybe no one's just gotten there yet, but, but perhaps more likely is this. The Jewish leadership probably hasn't sent anybody, and from what we can tell, they never send anybody about Paul because they know that their case against Paul is absolutely nothing. They don't have any eyewitnesses of anything. They don't have anyone who saw Paul defile the temple because he didn't do it. They've got nothing to stand on. All they have is hearsay and lies. And so they know their case is weak. And listen, if you bring witnesses, uh, you try to bring people against Paul before Caesar and you lose, it could really turn against you. And so they just leave it, uh, they leave it all together. And so Paul has to sort of introduce himself to the Jewish leadership in Rome. And listen to what Paul says. He clears his name, says, I haven't done anything, I'm not guilty of anything, but look at verse 20. He says, for this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. Now, we, we certainly live in a world that is hungry for true hope. Let, let me differentiate the word hope, how we normally use it in English, from how the Bible typically uses the word hope. Yeah, how do we, we use it as in 50-50 chance or a 70% chance. I hope, you know, whoever wins the game, I hope that, that I get home on time. I hope I don't get any extra work this way. I mean, we, we use the word hope in a very uncertainty kind of way. The Bible does not typically use the word hope that way. The word hope, much like the word faith, is a certainty fixed on the future. You are hoping in something. So, our world, everyone you've ever met, is hoping in something. And if they're in complete despair, then whatever they were hoping in has fallen apart. And they've got nothing left to hope in. But we are all wired to hope in something, to, to set and fix our hope on something to give us a sense of why we are here and what we are to do. And it is only the hope of Israel that is the hope that can actually satisfy us. We are told in 1 Peter to, to, uh, to uh, prepare our mind for action and to set our hope fully on the grace that is to be revealed to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. 1 Peter also says... You know this verse, be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience that those who revile your good behavior would have their own conscience accuse them, right? So the idea here is our hope should be so fixed on Jesus both now and in the future that it, it actually affects the here and now. And it actually affects the here and now in such a way that people notice it and they can tell that you are hoping in something different. Just to give an example, uh, when, a, when a Christian goes through a real serious trial, one that is known, whether it's your personal suffering or the suffering of a family member or a loved one, these are some of the hardest things that we, that we deal with. It is absolutely right and good and healthy to grieve. The Bible never says don't grieve when hard things happen. Jesus of course, in the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus what? He wept at the tomb of Lazarus moments before he raised him from the dead. There's nothing wrong with grief. Hope and grief can go together. But what 1 Thessalonians 4 says is we should not grieve at a funeral of a, of a, of a lost believer, loved one. We should not grieve, not at all. We should not grieve as those who have no hope. And so grief and hope can be mixed together, but when an unbeliever sees us, they will see often grief, they will see hardship, but in the midst of it, do they see a rock underneath the unsteady waves of the moment, the storm of the moment? Do they see that our feet are actually placed on an immovable rock that, is, that goes not that far underneath the waves and the chaos of this world? 
See, for a lot of non-believers, they don't have that rock. Well, they don't truly have the rock at all. And they are sitting on the water. And the waters get turbulent, and they've got nowhere to go. They've got nowhere to anchor themselves. But we have this hope that is fixed, that we can plant ourselves firmly in. And even though there is still chaos and difficulty and challenges around us, this hope, as R.C. Sproul one time said, we have um, hope. Uh, I'm, I'm going to butcher the quote. He says, we have hope. In the gospel, we have true hope, but it is hope enough, is what he said. We have true hope in the gospel. It's the only true hope, and it is hope enough. And that is true. And Paul says, listen, the hope of Israel, let me boil it down. What is it? The hope of Israel is resurrection and Messiah. And in the gospel, those two things meet. The first resurrection happens as the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus of Nazareth, was crucified for sinners and raised from the dead. That, that is the beginning of the hope. And we'll talk about this in coming weeks with Easter coming up. But 1 Corinthians 15 says that, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus' resurrection is a first fruits of the final resurrection. If Jesus, listen, if Jesus has risen from the dead, that is proof positive that all those who are in Christ have that same hope that just as he died and he was raised, so you too one day will die and be raised unless Jesus comes back first. We've got to know, I mean, this hope is clearly connected to death because it's about resurrection. Just... Death is, death is a terrifying reality. It, it just is. And the sting of death has been removed through the sacrifice of Christ, and we as Christians can face death honestly without ultimately losing our hope. Even death cannot take it away. So we've seen here Paul's life in verses 16 to 21 is consistent with his message, and now we will look at Paul's teaching in verses 22 and 23. Look at verse 22. But we desire to hear from you. This is the Jewish leaders talking to Paul. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, that's Christ followers, with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. Now, Paul, let me just mention my first two points, the words Paul's life and Paul's teaching. You may recognize those from 1 Timothy 4. Paul says, watch your life and teaching, the King James, your life and doctrine. And he says, if you persist in watching those two things, your life and your beliefs, your doctrine, your teaching. If you can guard those two things, everything's going to be great. If you lose either of those, your life or your teaching, it's like two wings on a plane. You've got to have both true doctrine about Christ and a life that is consistent with what we believe, a truly born-again life. And Paul here is demonstrating both of those, and his teaching is emphasized in this passage. And Paul is ready, not for the first time in Acts, to give a 12-hour sermon. Okay, it probably wasn't just him talking. From what we can tell, he would have had a rented apartment. Some people think there might have been even a, a kind of a, a courtyard area between other apartments that he might have had some of the leadership gather. And so the leaders come, the leaders of, there were numerous synagogues in Rome. So he has leaders from numerous synagogues come to meet with him. And he, if he can get the leaders, that's going to be huge for getting just Jews in general to trust in the Messiah Jesus. And that's what he wants to do, the Jew first and then the Greek. 
And so they come to him, and from morning until evening, from sunup till sundown, Paul, and here's my guess based on other texts and acts. I think it was a mixture of preaching and dialogue. I think Paul would proclaim the message, and then uh, he would dialogue. He would take questions, I am sure, because there's other texts that use that language. He would take objections and questions. Have you noticed in Paul's letters, he always anticipates the next objection? I bet in Romans, y'all talked about that today, right? In, in Romans 3, today in Sunday school, Paul goes, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I'm saying, therefore, let us sin that grace may increase. That's not what I mean. And so, Paul, how does Paul know what his, what his uh, opponents in a discussion are going to say? Because they've said it to him about 4,000 times over the last 10 years. Paul has had lots of practice with this. He'll debate synagogue leaders, he'll debate Gentiles, and he knows where people push back on his message. So Paul no doubt had dialogue, and then he would preach, and dialogue and preach. And this went on sunup until sundown. Now, how, how many of us honestly would be willing to, if someone's got questions about the Bible, whether it's a new Christian, someone who's been a believer a long time, or a non-Christian, which is maybe even best of all, how many of us are willing, and I, by the way, I know that so, so many of you are willing and you do this. How many of us are willing to give our, our valuable time away to sit, sit with somebody and as Papa Fred used to say, chop it up with the Bible? Papa Fred, where are you at? Right there. Remember, chop it up, Papa Fred. Papa Fred, we want to go chop up Galatians. I'm like, I'm not sure what that means exactly, but it sounds like fun. And so you sit down and you want to give time to talking over Scripture with people. How many of us are willing seriously to give hours to sitting down with someone, or talking on the phone, answering an email, whatever it may be, a text message, and going deep into God's Word, studying it together, reading it together. Uh, I could just, there's so many different stories of how you in this room have spent time with each other and loved each other well by walking through Scripture and studying it, uh, whether it's over coffee or wherever it may be. Let me also add this. Now, this is not to guilt you unnecessarily, because I understand we've all got different gifts and different abilities. I, I get that. But as a believer, it is still true that the more I know about the Bible, now again, you don't want to do, you don't want to do this like a Pharisee, right? It's not, I want to know a lot so I can show off. That is called sinning, okay? It's not good. It's not, I want to know a lot so I can show off. But Still, it is true. The more I understand God's Word, the more I have read it, prayed over it, studied it, read good study Bibles and commentaries, listened to good sermons on it, the more I have soaked myself in the Bible as time goes on, then the more I will know it, the better I will understand it, hopefully. And then here's the crucial part. Not the better I can show off. That's nonsense. That's not what we're about. The better I can love other people because I will better, I will be able to better and rightly, I will be able to better rightly handle God's word. What Paul says, we need to cut a straight line through doctrine. We need to rightly handle God's word. So the better I know it, and the more I've thought through it, and the more I've talked about it, the, the, the better I can be used by God to help other people with God's truth. I can lead them hopefully to truth, and they can help lead me more fully into truth. I mean, let, let's be honest. Some of the most maybe enjoyable and beneficial conversations that you've probably been a part of, that I've been a part of, or when you've got a little extra time and you're sitting around a table and people are just talking about what they are learning in God's Word. It is a delight and it is a joy to be able to be a part of those kinds of things. And Paul is willing to do this from morning until evening. You know, Paul is bound, right? Chained. There's that line in 2 Timothy. This is a few years later. Paul says, I am bound, but the Word of God is not bound. 
So even though I'm stuck here, I can't move. I'm inviting people to come to me and I'm gonna talk to them about Jesus. And then I'm gonna write letters and I'm gonna send them out so that people can hear more about Jesus. But Paul is devoted to the kingdom of God and to testifying uh, about Jesus from both the law of Moses and the prophets. Now let's look at the Jewish response. This is point number three, the Jewish response, verses 24 to 27. And you could probably guess based on this book so far what the response might look like. Verse 24, and some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, and then he reads this quote, which I'll get to in a moment. Have we not seen this in the book of Acts? Do we ever have a 100% success rate when the gospel is proclaimed? Not that I'm aware of. But there, the Word of God never returns void. I mean, th this is such a wonderful thing. It can so often feel like, what am I doing here? We're throwing out the seeds, right? The parable of the soil, soils of the sower. We're throwing seeds out. We're telling people, and it looks like nothing is happening. Well, listen, God's Word always 100% of the time accomplishes the purpose God has for it. It never fails. God's Word is not... Uh, going to fail in that sense. But there is not always going to be a 100% positive success rate in the response. Paul knows that. Some believe, but some disbelieve. And so Paul leaves them with this statement. And I'm going to take a slight detour because this is an important point. Look at verse 25. Paul says, and disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet. Now, This is so important. We, we, when Paul references Isaiah, listen, Isaiah had been written over 700 years before Paul was born, okay? So for him, it's an old book, right? Seven centuries before him. And he quotes it and says, the Holy Spirit is talking right now to you and me. So when, when Isaiah is speaking, the Holy Spirit is speaking, and if the Holy Spirit is incapable of error, because the Holy Spirit, He is incapable of error, then God's Word is incapable of error. I bring this up. I won't even say the name right now. I'll bring this up just because a well-known pastor a couple weeks ago, I listened to the sermon almost twice now, a well-known pastor said this. Just listen to these words. These are direct words from the sermon. I, I dictated them down. Quote, Christians are not expected to believe what we believe based on a collection of ancient manuscripts written by men who never met each other over the course of hundreds of years in a time when everybody was superstitious and everybody believed in the gods and there was no modern science. The foundation of our faith is far more substantial than that. It is far more sustainable than that. He's talking about the Bible. Then he says this, this incredible statement. The Christian faith does not rise and fall based on the accuracy or the inerrancy of 66 ancient documents that we call books of the Bible. Really? Let me read this again. The Christian faith does not rise and fall based on the accuracy or the inerrancy of 66 ancient documents that we call books of the Bible. It rises and falls on the identity of a single individual, Jesus of Nazareth. And I just, there's a smart aleck in me I got to hold on to. Okay, there's a part of me that just wants to just hit back as hard as I can. So I'm going to hold on. Remember Vody Bauckham? You remember Vody Bauckham used to say there's a, there's a guy in, inside of him called Bad Vody. He says, I let, him out, I let him out late at night when no one's around. So I'm not even sure that brother is saved sometimes from the stuff he wants to say in response to some of the nonsense that you hear. So I'm trying to hold on to my smart Alex self. But I just want to, here's my response. 
Okay? So the Christian faith does not rise or fall on the accuracy of the Bible. It rises or falls on the identity of Jesus, who you learned about where? From the 66 ancient books written by the superstitious men. Like what? Um, so, just want to say gently, let's take it everything I got to say this gently. If, if you're sitting at the feet of a podcast and the guy's talking like that, you need to find another podcast to listen to. Um, if that's the way the guy's talking, he does not have the respect for the Bible that he needs to have as a pastor of God's Word. He is saying things that are extremely misleading, and you, you, you got to get some distance from, from people who, who talk like that. So Paul here is not afraid to say, this ancient document written by Isaiah, it's the Holy Spirit talking right now, because it's God's Word, and so it is always relevant. It is relevant all the time, no matter what. The Holy Spirit is saying right now... Uh, to us through the prophet, verse 26. What does the Holy Spirit say? Verse 26. Go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand, and you will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, Listen to this. How true conversion happens is it, it goes like this. It, true conversion starts with the eyes being opened. Just, just look at the middle of verse 27. Lest they, you see this? Middle of verse 27. Here's how conversion should happen. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts. And what comes next? And turn, that's repentance and faith, and I would heal them. That's salvation, right? So, the eyes are blind to the beauty of Jesus. The ears are stopped to wanting to listen to Jesus. The heart is dead and dull to Jesus and alive to a hundred other things. What is salvation actually in real life? Salvation is the Holy Spirit begins to blow. The wind of the Spirit begins to blow. And suddenly there's an interest in the things of God that was not there five days ago, much less five minutes ago. You're just, suddenly there's a hunger there. Suddenly the eyes are beginning to open and you're starting to see something compelling in the person of Jesus. Suddenly the cross is not just what your, your parents or your grandparents talk about around the dinner table or what someone prays about here or there, what a church service is about. Suddenly Jesus becomes actually captivating and compelling. To, your, eyes and hearts are, your eyes and ears are open and your heart begins to be stirred by the person of Jesus. And you can't quite explain it. You don't even maybe know exactly what is happening to you in that moment, but suddenly you are, your affections are engaged with Jesus. You, you, suddenly you want to talk about Jesus. You want to study Jesus. You want to read about Jesus. You want to pray to Jesus. You want to tell people about Jesus because your heart is being stirred to Jesus. And what happens as a response to that, we turn. We turn from what we thought was beautiful and it now looks like nothing in comparison. And we turn to the one who is compelling and glorious and who we were made for. And we embrace him. We turn and we embrace him. And what happens next? The Lord heals us. This is not a physical, temporal healing. This is our eternal well-being in Christ. We are healed. It's salvation. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. You see here a theme that's run through the second half of Acts. The theme is this. Contrary to what many people would have expected, when the Messiah came, Israel as a nation rejected him. Not all Jews rejected him. Goodness, the, the New Testament is written by mostly Jews. So mo not all the Jews rejected him, but the majority of Jewish leadership rejected their own Messiah. That was pretty shocking to a lot of people. And even though a remnant was saved, 
the floodgates for the Gentiles started opening up. This is why we've been looking at throughout, throughout Acts. Remember Acts 1.8? Uh, you'll proclaim my name to, from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And Acts has followed there. We, we started in Jerusalem in chapters uh, 1 through 7. Judea and Samaria, chapters 8 and 9. The Gentiles, the ends of the earth, chapters 10 to the end of Acts, 10 to 28. What we're seeing is the gospel is now ringing out and Gentiles are flooding in while the Jewish people largely are receiving the gospel negatively. They're not embracing it fully. And Paul has already written to this church in Rome three years earlier where he explained this in great detail in Romans 9, 10, and 11. And in Romans 11, he says, listen, a partial hardening has come upon Israel so that the fullness of the Gentiles can come in, and then all Israel will be saved. And I believe that the, that the tide will turn uh, uh, near the end, that many, many Jews will flood into the kingdom and be, will be saved. I, I believe that's what Romans 11 is teaching. So let's look here at the very conclusion of the letter. This is my fourth point, verses 28 to 31, to be continued. And I, again, I, I hate trying to distract you with this kind of stuff. You may notice that verse 29 is missing in many of your English translations. Uh, if you have a King James or New King James, it will be there. If it's, I think if you have the Holman Christian Standard, it still has verse 29. Some of your translations will have it in a bracket. I think the NASB has it in a bracket. Uh, the ESV puts it in a footnote. I think NIV and other translations put it in a footnote. This is the same. It's really the same story for all these so-called missing verses. And I won't go on and on about this. I'll just say very quickly... The, the evidence is extremely strong that verse 29 is not original. All it says in verse 29 is it's nothing particularly shocking. It just says, when he had said these words, the Jews departed, having much dispute among themselves. That was already pretty much stated in verse 25. The short version is this. That verse, verse 29, is not there in the earliest and best manuscripts of Acts. It doesn't show up until late in the manuscripts. It's only in, in a smaller number of manuscripts. It's almost certainly not original. It's an example of a scribe trying to smooth over a difficult transition between two verses. So it, it seems like the transition between verses 28 and 30 is sudden, so they added a word to smooth out that the Jewish audience had left, but that was already mentioned in verse 25. So we could talk more about that, but that could be a distraction. Let me wrap the sermon up here with uh, verses 30 and 31. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Now, you may wonder, because almost everybody has the same question. Okay, we've been following Paul's life from the beginning all the way up to through his, I mean, it just feels like you got all this detail about his trials in Caesarea, and he's got Felix and Festus and Agrippa, and then he's got this long boat ride. We get a whole chapter of the boat ride. And then finally he gets to Rome, and it's a cliffhanger. Luke does not tell us what happened to Paul. Paul's sitting there in prison for two more years. It's four plus years in jail, and we're getting to the very moment, like, okay, did he get out or did he get killed? What's going to happen? Is he going to be beheaded? Is he going to be set free? And Luke's like, yeah, it just doesn't tell you. <laughs> so why, why is that? And there's different theories. Uh, I understand there's different theories here. Let me just tell you what I think is most likely. I think the point here is, if this were a biography of Paul, I think Luke would tell us what happened to Paul. But this is not about Paul. It's not about Peter. It's not about James. It's not about all these other characters in the book of Acts. It's about the Word of God triumphing according to Acts 1.8. And so it ends telling you what happened to the Word, not what happened to Paul. What happened was Jesus told the truth. 
Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, then what? The ends of the earth. Where's Paul? He's in the capital of the Roman Empire. He's over 1,500 miles away from where the gospel started. And what's he doing? He's preaching Jesus boldly and without hindrance to whoever will come listen to him. The word of God has not failed. It will not fail. It will never fail. That's the point of the book of Acts. It's not about Paul. It's about the gospel. And at the end, the gospel is triumphing right under Caesar's nose. You know what? Paul's going, the Greek word for, for Lord, this is just the Greek word for Lord is kurios, and Caesar was called Lord, kurios. And what, what is it? Paul's proclaiming the lordship of Jesus right under Caesar's nose in the heart of the Roman Empire, and that's how the, the, the book of Acts ends. And it really is a to be continued, and it's continuing right now, right? It's continuing all over the world. It's today literally hundreds of millions of people across all the continents, except for Antarctica, right now, are worshiping Jesus. They have worshiped Jesus today. And they, they are literally, like the gospel has spread all over the world. Maybe it's happening in Antarctica too. I don't know. There's some scientists down there right now, and they're, they're worshiping Jesus. That's possible. But across the world, the gospel has spread, and it is triumphing to this very day. And think about this. This would have sounded like a fairy tale at the time. The Roman Empire is something you read about in your history books. About a third of the people on earth at least say that they follow Jesus. Now, we're going to have to do some investigation about those statistics. But the point is the gospel has triumphed and outlived any Caesar and the Roman Empire, something in your dusty history book you got to go look up. But the gospel is triumphing to this very day. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, it is definitely not because of our strength or our resolve or our determination that the gospel is successful in this world in all the ways that you intend it to be. Lord, we are so often unbelieving. We are so often those who stumble. As James said, we all stumble in many ways. We are far from perfect. We are like the, the clay pots, the earthen vessels, but yet within us is this incredible treasure of the gospel. And although we are in so many ways limited and weak and finite, we don't know what to say. We don't always know what to do. We don't always know where to go or how to go about what you've called us to do. But we are so thankful, God, that you have all the power we need. Our sufficiency comes from you, not from ourselves. We are not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is in you. We thank you that you have all knowledge when we do not know what to think or what to say. We thank you that you give wisdom to those who ask. You give strength to the weak and the weary. You lift us up on wings like eagles so that we will walk and not be weary. We will run and not faint. God, I pray that the book of Acts, if it's taught us nothing else, would teach us that you are sovereign, you are good, you are powerful, and that you, in the end, get the victory because your gospel is backed up by the all-powerful Holy Spirit of God who works to open blind eyes, to open deaf ears, and to change hard hearts so that we could turn and experience your everlasting salvation. And I pray we could really, truly hope, hopefully, in the grace that is to be delivered to us when Jesus Christ is revealed. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.